Hello, this is Fred Goldstein, and I am live from the World Healthcare Congress. This is Health Innovation Media, and we're here on day one. We're going to be broadcasting two hours of live podcasts from here, and I'm so pleased to be joined by C.C. Connolly, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Alliance for Community Health Plans. Pleasure to have you. Fred, thank you for having me. It's great to be back at World Healthcare Congress. It's quite the conference, isn't it? <laughs> it is a little overwhelming. <laughs> it is. You had a great panel this morning that we'll probably get to oh, as well. thank you. But first, let's talk a little about your role in the Alliance for Community Health Plans. Sure. What are they and uh, what do they do? Sure. So all of our members are nonprofit, provider-aligned, community-based plans. And I pause on each of those elements because it really is important to have each of those ingredients. Um, We really believe that that model where you get the health plans and the clinicians wrapped around the patient and really engaged in a community, that's where you have the opportunity to start really having an impact on individual health, family health, and ultimately community health. Just contrast that for a minute, Fred, with a big corporate entity sits in headquarters and from year to year picks and chooses the markets that they think are going to be most lucrative. So they dip in, the next year they're out because they didn't make enough money. We don't think that's good for health. We don't think it's good for communities. All of our folks, they're in the same place, their neighbors, their family members, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. We think that actually shows up in the ROI. So, and I think I'm going to get to a question off of that, which is just fascinating. But first, who are some of your members? Uh, Well, we've got um, Geisinger in central Pennsylvania, Health Partners in Minnesota, UPMC, Pittsburgh, Presbyterian in New Mexico, Kaiser Permanente, of course, in eight regions. Uh, Up in uh, New York, we have CDPHP and we have Independent Health, AvMed down in Florida, uh, HAP and Priority in Michigan. I mean, it's just really a great group. It's a broad group and and both from regional, so I I assume you see different issues around the country, Approach as well as the different organizations or companies. Yes, and what makes it interesting is even with all of that diversity, uh, even in 32 different states, even with some different corporate entities, so for instance, uh, some like uh, Presbyterian or Select Health are part of large integrated delivery systems. Others think CDPHP, AvMed, they're doing contracting. Uh, with the providers. But what unites them is the belief in that model that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, we see that very close relationship. Mm -hmm. And as an alliance, what sort of things do you work on or benefits that you provide this group? We do three things at ACHP, Fred. We do advocacy here in Washington, (laughs) D.C. A little bit challenging these days, just trying to keep up. Um, We do a lot of market competitiveness work, so we really get into the digital analytics, benchmarking, looking at performance, looking at pharmacy data, MA stars data. And the third thing that we do, and I think this is a little different from maybe a traditional health insurance association, we're very engaged in clinical innovation. And we do a lot of programming with medical directors, pharmacy leaders, behavioral health. Um, Again, because we think you've got to have that element in with the plan activities. Right, and you've integrated that. And it sounds like given the groups you have, 
you really have some unique expertise that then can be shared amongst the group? We do, and as a matter of fact, uh, right now we have a pretty significant PCORI research grant um, looking at that unique role that a community health plan can play in working with providers to change behavior. It's pretty exciting stuff. We'll roll it out in November, but just one example to whet your appetite, Fred, is the way that our community health plans working with the clinicians are really reducing opioid prescribing in a very meaningful way and by offering alternative therapies. You can't do that if you're just paying claims. No, that's fascinating. Obviously, opioids are such a huge problem right now, and to see people starting to come up with these solutions um, from this side and that community base really makes some sense. So you mentioned something that really piques my interest, and that is when you talk about community-based and plans that focus on that, as you said, you're not leaving the community every year, every two years, so you end up having this much longer risk tail, which right. means it makes more sense for you to move further upstream because you're still going to have that person in your community 20 years from now. Absolutely. Do you see that impetus in how these groups work? Oh, absolutely. Well, the other element, of course, Fred, is that as nonprofit organizations, this is central to their mission, but they take a holistic view of an individual and of a community. They know that an individual market member this year could be a Medicaid member the next year or a Medicare Advantage participant. So first of all, just from kind of practical business reality, um, having that good relationship with the individual means that they keep them for years and years. And that's when you can start to really partner with consumers, with patients, and get to the things that make a big difference in their lives. So transportation, eating properly. A number of our member plans run food pharmacies nowadays, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Uh, Many of them are getting involved in housing which sounds pretty unusual for health plans, but they know if you're worried where you're going to sleep tonight, you're not focused on managing your chronic conditions. Absolutely, and there's some great data around housing to reduce health care costs, and even this year at the Population Health Colloquium, the winner of the Hearst Health Prize was a housing project (laughs) in Boston. So you're right on target with this, and your plans are really right on target with it. Fascinating. So what other things are you seeing in the social determinants areas you, you were trying to allude to this morning, get into with the conversations, that you see your plans beginning to say, let me start thinking about how I develop something in that area. Well, there are two things. One with respect to our plans, and one I also want to give a shout out to policymakers for a a bit of a positive development. So the first thing is that what I'm excited about, and you certainly know this from your career, Fred, for a long time, this was kind of a squishy, happy, feel good. We're just going to do some nice kids program in the community and say that we checked that box. Well, now we're actually getting some rigor around these initiatives and we're getting serious about ROI. And again, you do it first and foremost because of mission and because of individuals' health, but you talk to the folks at Geisinger about their food pharmacy. They are investing large sums of money in the food, in the coordinators, in the transportation, and yet they are still saying they are recouping thousands of dollars in saved medical costs. So that's where we've really got ahead with this. It can't just be 
feel good. Not right. not in this environment, not in this economy. Nobody has money to throw at things if we don't really see some success and some value. Mm-hmm. The other I just have to mention because it's so exciting and not enough people, in my view, are thinking about it. Medicare Advantage, starting in the 2019 year, is going to permit more supplemental benefits, as we call them, into that basic bid. Well, this is enormous for our plans. I mean, they have been doing the hard work of transportation, of food insecurity, of safety in the home. But now, finally, it's being recognized as bringing value and helping people live independent lives at home, aging in place a lot longer. That's where we all want to be. I certainly know I want to stay at home and be independent and healthy. And it's pretty exciting that we're going to have this opportunity. I just really hope that some of the most innovative organizations are going to come in and share what they've been learning so that this can really spread. Right. I think it's fascinating that it's now recognized by CMS. Hey, we'll go ahead and let you start doing these services and pay for them, which is important. Also, we've talked a little bit about this, and some of it came up in the second panel, was this whole concept of we do have this excess in the healthcare system. There's about 30% out there that we really need to get out, which is a trillion dollars that I've been hammering. We could put all of that to the social services and imagine what that would do. And so are your plans beginning to think that way, too, from a value-based perspective? Let's see if we can get some of this waste out of the system. Absolutely. It's very challenging because... Mm -hmm. um, the waste, you know, I like the description of it's sort of like fat marbled in a nice, big, thick, juicy steak, <laughs> right? If we could somehow just extract that out. So I, I fully appreciate that it's challenging, but let me suggest to our audience a great place to start is on um, inappropriate, unnecessary care, errors, waste, yep. duplication. There's so much of that. So what we see going on at some of our more innovative plans that I love, is thinking about lower back pain. Let's not do surgery first. Let's really try some physical therapy, some medication, some different kind of strategies. Then maybe you get to imaging if it's still a problem. And you sort of, you work your way from watchful waiting up to the most, you know, dramatic, intrusive, Mm -hmm. costly interventions. Over and over again, I have to give a shout out, Dr. Marty McCary at Hopkins. He's doing a lot of work right now around appropriateness. Mm -hmm. And what he's seeing in tests and procedures is that even a very good, valid, legitimate procedure, once doctors hear about it, they want to do it on everybody. Well, it's only appropriate for this narrow subset. So let's get everybody focused on what's right patient, right procedure, right time kind Mm -hmm. of thing. I think that would be an enormous improvement. Yeah, I think we've seen some stuff. I was reading uh, Walmart was talking about how they take their back surgery and fly them to Houston um, for no cost. But if you want it locally, you pay a big out-of-pocket, and then about 40% of the people end up getting flown down there sent back saying they didn't need the surgery to begin with. At least 40%. At least. And look, who wouldn't be happy if you discovered, I don't have to have major surgery, and I'm feeling better? Yeah, (laughs) fascinating. So you've been in D.C. for a while, Uh, uh, now running this really good association what do you see happening here in Washington? Uh, Any of your sense, or goodness. is it just 
It, you know, every day brings a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> some days are healthcare, some days are others. Right. Um, I think, though, that at least this year, uh, things are settling down a little bit on the healthcare front. And what we're really focusing on right now is uh, working with a number of the people that have come into the administration and the agencies. You're seeing with Secretary Azar, uh, he's bringing back a very professional, experienced, a group of individuals who many of them worked with him in the prior Bush administration. They understand government. They see the proper role for government. Not huge, but proper. And because of that group starting to settle in, um, we're optimistic that there are opportunities to really talk about exactly that MA supplemental benefits mm-hmm. idea that we were discussing. Another one on the horizon for the following year is telehealth mm-hmm. in the MA basic bid. Another place where we think finally you're going to get some innovation that's going to benefit patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from what I've heard and in a few conversations I've had with CMS, it's kind of like we're going to have this professional approach, but we think the innovation may be coming from out there <laughs> instead of this top down. We're going to tell you what we want you to innovate around. And so I get the feel that they're looking more towards the private sector and plans and others to bring ideas forward. Fred, I think that's absolutely correct. And what we're trying to do is encourage people to come in with those ideas because I think, and and I'd be curious in your view, but there might be a little bit of a gun-shy feeling right now that, oh, if we try this, our bid is going to be rejected, we're going to be audited, we're going to be humiliated. And so we have to all get to that comfort level where everyone can appropriately push the envelope, test some things, and then once it's been tested and proven, let's go. Let's go. I mean, the thing that I hear the frustration is we ran a great pilot. We did something with CMMI. Everybody said great success. Well, why aren't we seeing that spread? Right. Right. Just fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to listen to your panel this morning. That was really interesting. And your association is doing some great work. So really appreciate your time, Cece. Thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure. You take care. You too. Thank you so much. So there you have it, Cece Connolly with the Alliance for Community Health Plans. And uh, to connect with the Alliance for Community Health Plans, what's your website or how to get a hold of you? Well, ACHP.org or I'm on Twitter, Cece Connolly. So please do join us. Yeah, follow on Twitter. That's the place to go and hit the website. Thank you again. Mm-hmm. And so up next, we have the Dave Chase, founder of Health Rosetta. A gentleman I know fairly well. Talked to him a few times. It's great to have him in here. And of course, we'll have to bring the book out. So welcome, Dave. Pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. Thank great you. Great to have you on uh, today from the World Healthcare Congress. And uh, I assume you came in from somewhere on the left coast, maybe? I, I did. I uh, live north of Seattle. Well, fantastic. It's great to have you. And we saw yesterday in the panel, you opened up that presentation. So why don't you tell uh, the audience a little bit about Health Rosetta and your background and how you started that? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the Health Rosetta, the, the kind of shorthand I use is because a lot of people are familiar with LEAD that took green building practices from a fringe concept 20 years ago to, you know, mainstreamed it. Even if you don't care about the environment, you probably follow those practices today. Right. <laughs> you know, that's a blueprint for how to build and maintain buildings uh, successfully. The Health Rosetta is meant to be a blueprint for how you purchase and deliver health care uh, effectively. 
And that really came from uh, just wanting to give a name to what I was seeing, which is, you know, we say somewhat optimistically, but we believe it on our site. Healthcare is fixed. We're just replicating the fixes. And I heard a little bit from your previous conversation. Um, we don't need any great breakthroughs. We need to replicate what's actually working. And so I thought, boy, these people have cracked the code that have figured out whether it's a primary care model or whatever it might be. Um, I said, well, you know, for a lot of people, healthcare is indecipherable, just like Egyptian hieroglyphics were indecipherable. And the Rosetta Stone helped decode that. um, And so thus the health Rosetta. And that was, you know, where it kind of got started. And then it's gone from there. It's kind of mushroomed from there, actually yeah. grown incredibly. It's, yeah. it's been fascinating to watch that growth. And obviously, you put this book out, The CEO's yeah. Guide to Restoring the American Dream, which I would recommend anybody yeah. read. And it's not just to throw an ad out, because it yeah. really is true. You found some great ideas, put it into a book. So tell us a little bit about what's in here and what people find. Yeah, I mean, really related to the health Rosetta was, mm-hmm. you know, it, it almost feels like if you were to find the cure for cancer and didn't share it with people, that would be a crime. And I felt like Given the devastation that um, healthcare is wrought on the working and middle class in America and a lot of local economies, and the opioid crisis, these are all things that are directly impacted by and driven, frankly, by the healthcare mm-hmm. industry. And so, you know, books a tremendous way to get that information out there. I felt like people don't know about this. Um, they need to know that it's absolutely possible to get world-class health care at half of what we're paying for today. Mm-hmm. It's happening. It's not some Star Trek sci-fi future. It's happening today, just not nearly enough. And so it was really lay out, how did we get here? How, where do we go? How do you make it happen? It's kind of a nuts and bolts. It's not necessarily a novel you read straight uh-huh. through. It's more of a, you know, Rick Steves guidebook through, you know, navigating this journey. And, if, and I know you offer this. People can download it? Yep. Free. You can go to healthrosetta.org slash friends and uh-huh. download it free. We don't want, uh, you know, to be any barriers to getting right. access to this information. It's, and that's really, the, I think, the key to large-scale change is open-sourcing things and then replicating that. doesn't mean there aren't, you know, business opportunities around improving things. Sure. Um, but we didn't want that to be a barrier. So, yeah, go up there and, you know, read the whole thing, preview it. Go buy it. I don't care. Just put it into action. Yeah. And when you sort of started this a few years back, I remember there was maybe this small group yep. of people talking about this concept. And now we're seeing major employers, the Amazons, Berkshires, yep. J.P. Morgan, recognizing this, Walmart recognizing this. Do you think we're finally getting enough momentum? It's now out there in the public and it's going to begin to see these changes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to happen without some effort. You know, the, the things you're doing and Greg and, and hopefully what we're doing. Um, but there is a momentum that I haven't felt in, in my experience in this industry. And it's to early days, lots of, lots of uphill work. But I do feel that it, we've reached that tipping point and now it's ready for that next level where it's not just a couple you know, oddballs in, you know, different parts of the country. There's literally, you know, the book, there's been 10,000 copies of the book that's gotten wow. out there. Um, in the the first thing that we did in the Health Rosetta program is have a certification for benefits consultants. Um, in one month, we got applications for that program for what we thought it would take us two years to get to that number. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. And so it's a good problem to have. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, but it was kind of overwhelmed us, and it's not. 
we don't want it to just be some silly mail-in diploma. So right. we're not accepting everybody. Uh, we've onboarded 68 people so far. It represents about 3.3 million lives. The way so you're you know, getting some critical mass yeah. in terms of employer lives. Yeah, well. we have about 10. Line of sight by the end of the calendar year, about 10 million. That's wow. If we continue to execute the way we're doing mm-hmm. and we're adding some resource, we've done this all bootstrap, self-funded. And so we're going to bring in a little extra capital because we don't want to disappoint people. There's there's an eagerness that even was beyond what we expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to get ahead of that a little bit more. We're mm-hmm. you know behind, but I guess in kind of a good way because there yeah. is that pent-up demand. And so brokers are now getting this. We obviously talked about yesterday certain companies in the space that yep. do unique things. So if you were to go talk to an employer CEO, say from not one of those leading ones like we've heard from, but some of the yep. others who are sort of wondering, well, what do I do? So what would you tell them to start? Well, you know, it's situational, dependent mm-hmm. on the company and, and all that. And so I think you can start in some areas that the employee are kind of behind the scenes mm-hmm. sort of things. The employees will not necessarily see, you know, simple things like bill review. You mm-hmm. know, there's just, I, I've worked inside of hospitals, putting out bills. I don't know if there's ever been a bill over $10,000 that hasn't had a mistake. And sometimes they're uh, enormous. And some employers actually... Um, give incentives to their employees. If you find an error that we don't have to pay for, you'll get 20% of it. I know one company, they, there was a woman, she was making $50,000 a year. They found a 200, she found a $200,000 error. She got one of those Ed McMahon checks. Um, it was $40,000. <laughs> wow. You can imagine the rest of the employees started oh, yeah, scouring those bills. <laughs> send me um, yours, send me yeah. yours. I'm so there's simple those. things like that. There's things you can do in in uh, pharmacy. Depends. If you're a real long-term oriented uh, organization and you have some critical mass of uh, employees, then primary care is so foundational. The sooner you get going on that, um, the, the better. Mm-hmm. You know, the, Unfortunately, most people haven't experienced proper primary care in this country. It's been so undermined. Right. Um, and... There's no healthcare system in the entire world that I know of that operates well without primary care. And so the sooner you get going on that with the proper primary care, just, you know, there's some great on-site, near-site clinics, there's direct primary care. But be clear, not all on-site, near-site clinics are good either. Some are just a slightly more convenient flavor of the right. failed. Or they hung the shingle on it and said, yeah. here's what we are. Yeah. So do your homework. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the great things about you know the conference we're at, and you know you heard about the awards last night with the mm-hmm. the Validation Institute. These are people who are putting their their you know butt on the line, basically, as yeah. far as to prove results. And that's uh-huh. what you see with all the folks who really are making a difference. They know they can prove results uh, and demonstrate them, so they're willing to put their fees at risk. If you don't. Yeah. have that confidence you don't do that right and I think your underlying message which is so powerful really is to the CEOs and the C-suite is yes you can do something about this healthcare is not quite so crazy that you can't grab a hold of it right take a look at your stuff and help and help to solve the problem that you're facing with how much you're putting out maybe the poor quality your employees are getting yeah I mean it's it's definitely true. I mean, a lot of people think that it's like trying to solve Middle East peace or something <laughs> like that. Um, you know, one of the probably most provocative things I've heard in the last month was a C- former CEO of uh, one of the three largest real estate firms in the country. He read my book, talked to me, and said, after I read your book, I realized what the benefits that I was offering to my employees was cruel and in- inhumane. It's like... That's pretty stark. Wow. And they, these were not a bad, bad benefits package. Right. And the fact is, 
you do put your people in harm's way, not to mention squander a lot of dollars. Um, and so just apply the same discipline you do to every other area of your business. It's often the second biggest cost after payroll. And so once you have that mindset shift, I'd say that if there's one chapter that has resonated more than any other, peop- any other it's chapter nine, I think is says you run a healthcare business whether you like it or not. Here's right. how to make it thrive. And I think that's the mindset shift. They're like, okay, we're in that business. We're in the people business. Everybody says, um, you know, that our people are our most important, most important asset, asset yeah. right? So you're not getting a good return on that asset if you don't have uh, great health benefits. And unfortunately, most of them don't. Right. You know, to get to that, I believe you talked about it yesterday, if I remember correctly. And there was this recent article that came out that talked about, hey, high deductible health plans don't work. You know, you're putting all that onus on the individual. And you talked about perhaps offering a rich health plan, a yep. good health plan for the employees, and you'll actually do better. Yep, yep. I mean, it's the uh, the way I look at it and the way one employer articulates it, the best way to slash healthcare costs is improve benefits, which sounds like a, a paradox, uh, but actually can be done. Right. Um, and you just have to be thoughtful, of course, about how you do that, but absolutely possible. And then some of it is also bringing in the right provider networks or the right doctors or the right uh, components of your program to ensure that that service you're getting in each of those areas is of high quality and the appropriate cost you're not paying for the excess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really unbelievable, the variation. For sometimes the exact same doctor doing the same procedure in two different facilities, there can be a 10x price difference, and there's no reason. And a lot of times it's where it's more expensive is actually higher risk of, of hospital-acquired infections and things like that. So really be careful. You know, I mean, one of the crazy stats that I throw out there is it's 47 times safer to jump out of a plane than to be admitted to a hospital. <laughs> That's a good I one. assume with a parachute yeah, um, right. when you jump out. Yeah, well, I don't think I'll try it the other way unless <laughs> yeah. I'm in the water, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, what... What else do you see happening in the next couple of years? Where do you want to take this? And I know you've got another book coming out. Yep. Um, I think it's it's moving, you know, it's it's moving from that early adopter phase to the next phase, and it's really this awakening, broadening. The next book, um, the title sort of suggests the, the point of it, The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call, and the subtitle is Healthcare is Stealing the American Dream. Here's how we get it back. Um, and... Unfortunately, the opioid crisis, which is the largest public health crisis in 100 years uh, in this country, is entirely a self-inflicted wound. Sadly, it's not an anomaly. It is a perfectly logical byproduct of a catastrophically dysfunctional system. And if you so can you yeah. link a few of those points together yeah. of, how, of how that is and how you brought those two together? Because I don't think a lot of people would look at it that way. Yeah. But I think um, you're on target. Yeah, you think about um, who's impacted by the opioid crisis. Overwhelmingly, it's working age uh, people. Um, and because if you're not low income or you're not elderly, you get your benefits through your job typically. Um, and if you look at the opioid crisis, I studied it and with a lot of help, there's 12 major drivers. Unfortunately, the, the problem is getting oversimplified in a lot of cases, thus the so-called solutions aren't making a dent. Um, the largest enabler on t- 11 of the 12 major uh, drivers are employers, unwitting enablers. Wow. But they're the ones who are actually paying for people to get non-evidence-based opioid prescriptions for lower back pain, or worse, say a lumbar fusion for there's no little or no evidence for lower back pain and then you get a prescription and guess what when you get a prescription and 
one out of six times, if you use it for a week, basically, you're going to become addicted. So it's basically Russian roulette that you're playing with your employees. And the stats just came out from uh, Truven that Kaiser Health News reported on. It said 30% of employees in large um, employers have gotten an opioid prescription last year. So even after all this visibility, we still have extraordinary rates of opioid prescriptions that there's not evidence to back. Now, there's certain things opioids are appropriate for. Cancer, end of life, you know, there's some long-term, you know, rare disease. There are some appropriate uses, but boy, we're vastly over-prescribing, and it is really risky. And it changes the brain and changes the function like nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real tragedy, and you think about it. And now the other issue that I've been thinking about is as people begin to cut off those prescriptions, many of those folks are going to the street. And yep. now they're getting the fentanyl and the rest of the stuff, the yep. heroin. And, That's yeah. what I was alluding to with the yeah. so-called solutions. Yeah. It be just becomes squeezing the water balloon. And it is. It's, it's cheaper to get the street fentanyl and street heroin. Uh -huh. And that's where you see a lot of the deaths. And I think it's 80% of the people who are overdosing and dying that started with following doctor's orders with a prescription opioid. Right. So this wasn't just wow. something recreational that mm -hmm. they started on. They followed doctor's orders. We hear a lot in this industry about, I hate the term compliance yeah. and even adherence, but you know, trying to get people to follow. What we're hammering on patients to follow take the... Take your meds. Follow take your, your meds. So they followed the orders and they got addicted. They got addicted. Well, fascinating. When's the book going to come out? Uh, around no later than Labor Day. We're sort of figuring that out. Um, <laughs> we're going to kind of trickle out uh, some of the stuff over the summer. Good. Um, but, yeah, no later than Labor Day. Well, looking forward to it. And if people want to get in touch with you through the website, what's the website again? Healthrosetta.org. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Dave, for All joining right. us Thanks, today. Fred. It's great, as always, to see you. And make sure to get a copy of the CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream. It's well worth a read. All right. Thanks, Thank Fred. you. So there you have it. All right. Dave Chase here in, in the booth. Um, so far this conference, uh, yesterday we had a pre-conference, uh, Brian Klepper's group, and uh, now we've got our next individual stepping in. <laughs> Hello, Kenneth. I'm Fred Goldstein. Nice to nice meet nice you. Nice to meet you. Thank so you. tell me, who are you with? Yes. Yeah. Um, my wife and I are physicians, and we uh, started a startup company called Wonder Health LLC, um, and we created... Um, a free smartphone application uh, for all consumers. We say that uh, everybody that breathes air has a health history, whether it's very complex or simple. Um, and when you go to a provider, they need to know that information. That information is standard. You can ask any physician or any healthcare provider. It has past medical history, past surgical history, allergies, medications, family history, social history, review assistance, but it's not standardized. So mm -hmm. we standardized that information and we standardized the responses to it. Um, and then in our IP, uh, we have actually converted that information into a QR code, which is that black and white square haze sure. that you can scan. And then you go to the provider, and it's an untethered platform. So you go to the provider, and they can scan your smartphone, and they get that information. So you no longer have to hear, can you fill out this, can you fill out this paper form? Can you fill out this paper form? And how do they get that information? 
So the providers, on the provider side, they have just a, a pretty standard and basic uh, software that we have licensed to decrypt the information and that they scan it with just a traditional 2D scanner, like you would scan your groceries at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then that information would come to the provider in a condensed one-page or two-page format, and then they can integrate that into their workflow. So is it a printout? Is it a text file? Is it importable? Or? So it comes to them as a PDF. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it comes to them in raw data. So the, the providers may decide that all they want is the data, so they can have the data and use it to dictate off of. If they want to st- uh, use that information um, in uh, multiple formats, they can it actually converts it to a PDF. That PDF can be tagged into an electronic medical record system. That mm-hmm. PDF can be printed out and tagged into a, a, a paper chart for, sure. we have a dentist office that is paper, and so they can just add it to the dentist office, to the, um, the paper chart. Um, that information can be printed, and uh, I'm a provi- uh, I am a practicing physician, so I like to have that information on paper. I take notes on it when I see my patient, and then I dictate off of it later. Mm-hmm. They can take that information, and they can scan it into the EMR, um, and then we're actually in the process with two open source EMR systems to actually take that data via our API that we're developing and actually auto-populates the EMR system. Mm -hmm. And how much information do you have that you're now taking into this data system? In other words, is it a full medical record type system or is it a subset of data? Yeah. So we are not a full electronic medical record system. We are an add-on service to the electronic Mm -hmm. medical record system and we have a very condensed and concise set of of data sets. So Mm -hmm. it is really you know, your, your individual um, health information, uh, your uh, demographics, your primary care physician, your pharmacy, and then what I stated before, past medical, past surgical, allergies, medications, family history, social history, review of systems. We also include immunization records as well as a health maintenance. Health mm-hmm. maintenance is for things that don't... Um, uh, occur very frequently, like a colonoscopy, a hemoglobin A1C for diabetes, sure. um, your blood type, that kind of standard information. And how does the individual get that loaded in? This is patient self-reported information. This is the process that every health care provider is doing anyway. So they put the patients take their information and put it into the system. Correct. And then you make it available to the providers. And how is that funded? Do the patients purchase that system, providers? So the the smartphone application is completely free for mm-hmm. the consumer, um, and it will remain free as long as my wife and I have any say-so about there you it. Go. Um, and the reason why is because we really want to help, and mm-hmm. if you price point it out of any, any patient's price point, then they're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. So it's totally free for the consumer, and then from the provider, it's actually a cost saving. So we actually did a questionnaire, a uh, case study where we sent off um, a questionnaire generating questions around this process, whether they the office would send out a questionnaire to the patients or whether they have staff that would review this information in the office and, and manually enter, it informa- enter that information as well as disposal of that information. We aggregated the responses um, and the average cost uh, for the 15 practices that we got was that it was around $150 per month that is spent doing this process. Our price point is at $45 per month. Uh-huh. So we actually save each practice or each office over $100 a month by using this this software. Uh-huh. And how far distributed is it now? Is it rel- it's relatively new, I understand? Yes, we are a startup. We, uh, we have four beta sites, and we're now trying to grow uh, both 
globally and, well, nationally and internationally. So another characteristic of the smartphone application, um, which is truly unique and part of, a, again, our IP, is that um, because these responses, or because the questions and the responses are standard, regardless where you are on the globe, we actually um, condensed the standardized responses um, into a third-party identifier, condensed third-party identifier. That identifier is then communicated to the provider and is converted back into the full form. So it's easy to understand that we took the entire uh, smartphone application and translated all the the data fields into Spanish. So if an individual is a primary Spanish speaking individual, mm -hmm. they enter that information in Spanish. It is linked to the same third party identifier as the English version. And then on the provider side, they can pick which language that they want that information to come. So it actually translates Spanish to English, English to Spanish. And we're going to do 50 languages in five years. Fantastic. That's great. And um if people want to find out about it, where do they go? Yeah, so we have uh, our website is minaapp.com, M-I-N-A-A-P-P.com. Um, on that link, we have a landing page uh, that has a tab for users and for providers to so go to the users, and then they can get up more information. More specifically, we have a very brief 2.5-minute um, video uh -huh. that everybody can look. It's at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Mina, capital M-I-N-A, underscore health capital H lowercase e a l t h and then they can see the video and once you look at the video it speaks for itself got it and so where are you in your development phase you talked about you got four pilots have are you um, out looking for funding are you bootstrap this is it uh, <laughs> growth staff uh, kind of you're looking at all of that now I would assume yes we we, um, we do have an initial set of investors and then my wife and I have funded this up until this point on our right. own uh, moxie I guess as it is um, but we are uh, fully functioning uh, right now we are actually in the process of developing our API with two open source EMRs uh -huh. uh, so we're looking for some funding to help provide that but yeah we're 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 up and running and we're looking for new sites and hopefully at the conference um, we'll be able to convince some of the the members here that we're right. really changing the way that we communicate this health information this mm -hmm. is standard information every healthcare provider needs it whether it's a chiropractor a dentist a primary care specialist we even created a, a pet profile so if your four-legged friends Don't have a health issue vet. and go to your vet you can actually use the same application wow. to go to your vet um, and you know we want to say that this is a 21st century solution to a 20th century problem and we want to be around the globe with this so well fascinating and um, when you first started thinking about that was it because you were in your practice and said I've got this <laughs> issue I want to solve it where to come from yeah, so I like to say that my wife is way smarter than I am, and she totally is, and she's completely out of my league. Uh, but many moons ago, we were sitting around the dinner table, and we were talking about the inefficiencies of our office. And uh, one of the things that is primarily frustrating to the providers is whenever a, a patient would show up on time for their visit, but that they don't have this information completed. So then that will take the next 20 to 45 minutes to complete this information. That is, uh, put a wrench into our schedule. So we right. decided that there's probably an improvement on the status quo. Um, and then that's where the generation of this um, project came from. 
great. And I guess you were showing here at the conference? Yes, we have a booth here at the conference um, uh, that I'll be standing at all day, today and tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, I actually have a, a presentation at 10.15. Uh, uh-huh. uh, I will be speaking for 15 minutes, and then I'll pass it off to um, a panel. Uh-huh. I have one of the providers uh, that is using Mina that is flying for the conference. Uh, we have a core team member from an open-source EMR that we're working for our API. It's called Hospital Run, which is a third-world EMR. There's implications for Mina in the third world, which we can discuss Mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, And then we have a consumer that's going to be on the panel. So we're going to spend 45 minutes uh, telling people why they should have been like, why didn't I think of that? Right, absolutely. So (laughs) tell me a little bit about the international. You mentioned that a little. Yeah, so um, one of the, the, the... dear missions of our of our company is that we can help those that are underserved. Um, now, I personally did some time in Uganda and doing some international care and research, um, and so I was firsthand to understand that you know electronic medical records in that environment is the infrastructure is not there to provide uh, that type of service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know as a provider that if you have this standard information sitting in front of you, past medical history, past surgical history, and so on, and a patient, you can provide very high quality care. Now, in in the developing or the majority world, smartphone use is actually increasing. They may not have, per se, good uh, uh, access to electricity, but they can have, you know, a smartphone. And within the app, you can create an unlimited number of profiles. So... Each individual doesn't need to have the smartphone. So they could have it for their family and have one for each kid and the exactly, spouse? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So this is a makeshift um, electronic medical record for the majority world. And mm-hmm. so we really, we're, we are trying to establish some connections um, to where we can actually uh, provide the uh, device uh, to a third world uh, uh, company our third world uh, country, um, and then we've actually developed a, a work model to where an individual or a company uh, from a developed nation can sponsor a, a site in a, in a developing nation um, to have the reader software. So the reader software is still very cheap, but um, in this way then you can we can pair uh, providers to donors, um, and then they can actually help um, provide high quality care in the majority world. Oh, fascinating. So that's great. Congratulations on getting the product put together and getting it out there. Hopefully you'll get more interest in it. We get more people to yes. in- integrate that into their practices. Obviously it's a problem that needs some solutions. Yes. And it sounds like you put one together. So thank you so much. And again, it's Mina Health. And what's your website? So it's MinaApp, M-I-N-A-A-P-P dot com. Uh-huh. Fantastic. Well, okay. thank you so much for joining us. Ken. Thank you very much. Yep. So there you have it, one of the uh, innovators here at the conference talking about their app, Mina app. And um, as I was saying earlier, we're um, doing two hours today. And uh, yesterday I was here, came for the High Performance Healthcare Network, uh, networking and uh, meeting, and actually uh, something put together by Brian Klepper and Vidar Jorgensen. And the concept there was to identify and show people that there is a better way for their health. Come on in, David. So... I'm now here going to be joined by a good friend, a healthcare expert, I would say, David Kibbe. It's a pleasure to have you, David. Good Thanks so much. You. Would you move a little closer? We'll make sure we got your sound in here clear as, as can be. Um, so how are you doing today? 
Doing very well, Fred. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. Uh, conference has been good so far. Obviously, I think you were here yesterday for some of those pre-conference sessions. And um, um, give us some of your thoughts on, on that and what you heard yesterday. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, there's there's a sense that uh, that the fix is in. Yeah, you know that the that the hospitals and the healthcare systems are kind of in control of pricing and uh, costs. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of evidence that in fact we're starting to see the market work a little better. Uh-huh. Uh, we're starting to see. Uh, the um, the wave coming, I think, uh-huh. uh, that that will ultimately change healthcare and improve the quality at the same time as reduce the cost of care. I mean, so you you think the transitions here? We were talking about a little bit earlier with C.C. Connolly. Think it's coming? I think it's coming. I, I think that the healthcare industry is still too large an industry to. Uh, cause massive disruption you know it's just not going to happen overnight but I, I think that people's minds are changing I think that value is becoming something people really want and the experience that they have in healthcare they're not getting that um, when you know our deductibles are 10,000 or 15,000 right. uh, dollars uh, I know my children you know who are all grown are really struggling to get healthcare yeah. uh, insurance um, and uh and and to be able to afford healthcare, and I think the you know we're at the point where, as a society, we're about ready to say we can't afford what we're paying. Right. Yeah. That's great. So you're always doing interesting things. What are you working on now? Well, I'm still working on um, direct trust. Uh huh. You know, we have uh, collaboratively built a network of health information exchange that is secure, identity verified. Uh, easy to use uh, electronic health records that are certified all accept and receive direct messages uh, we have uh, we're going to hit 200 million transactions this year uh, so it's been a pretty remarkable journey um, uh-huh. that this nonprofit startup that you know began with uh, sort of a dream that we would be able to move data between users of different electronic health records has finally become a reality. We're seeing, um, you know, good uh, progress in replacing the facts with electronic messaging and attachments via direct and the direct trust network. We're seeing EHR vendors' products get more usable and more reliable with respect to their uh, user interface uh, at the medical practice or the hospital. And we're starting to see patients' use of direct um, start to pick up. So direct trust sort of sits in the middle of these connections and allows for the secure transfer of this data. Well, we really don't sit in the middle. Right. We, we sit on the outside. We provide the trust framework, the accountability of the uh-huh. system, the accreditation of the parties that um, are exchanging health information securely, but there's no hub in, in uh, the direct trust network. It's literally peer-to-peer. So if you're an EHR user or a PHR user with a direct address, or you could be a device in a hospital system with a direct address. That information is going out over the internet, but it's doing so in an encrypted manner with identity verification occurring Between prior. those two and not through something else. Not through something Got else. It. And you mentioned also the use by consumers or the individual patient. Talk about that a little bit. So, how are they, so they're accessing it through whatever they're going to look at their medical records through or something like that? 
Well, what's happening without much marketing or fanfare um, is that patients and consumers are starting to use their direct addresses to communicate um, confidentially and securely with their provider organizations. Mm -hmm. um, we have about uh, 1.8 million endpoints on the Direct Trust network. About 250,000 of those are now patient and consumers. So um, it's not a lot, but uh, last year it was but only 100,000. Yeah. So it's no, doubled great. in a year, basically. And so if somebody wants to use Direct Trust, how do they do that? I mean, do they get it they, through their provider? Do they get that? Or is it they go to a site, get this set up? How does that work? There are currently uh, over 20 personal health record companies that I know of. That applications have it into their system. That allow patients to sign up for a direct address within there. And then they can communicate with anybody else on the system who has a direct address. Right. So as that network grows, maybe they're with this hospital and this doctor, and then there's another one, and they can now connect because they've grown into that direct trust Correct. network as well. And they're quite literally on a day-to-day -day basis walking into their doctor's offices and saying, do you have a direct address? Wow. And if, if the doctor uh, does, then there is often a dialogue that says, well, can we start communicating about some things via this secure uh, messaging and attachment uh, a network that's up there? And, and physicians are, as you know, not always uh, amenable to that, but some are. And I, and I think that over time... And don't you feel that's changing too, right? More and more providers are starting to say, yeah, we're, we're willing to do this. Well, that's right, yeah. and uh, you know the federal federal uh, uh, rules are still requiring the right. 2015 edition and the 2019 no longer meaningful use program. It's right. now the <laughs> uh, uh, the interoperability program. Yeah, uh, um, uh, that that will require uh, hospitals to not only have. Uh, patient portals for patients, but allow patients to use email and encrypted email that is direct mm -hmm. to move their data. So what we're what we're seeing is is that uh, hospitals and healthcare systems are starting to understand patients want multiple ways to get access to their health information, and direct is one of the most secure and least expensive for 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 for, for that use. And um, who are some of your larger clients in the system? Well, we have 117 members, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but there are over 110,000 organizations, healthcare organizations, that use Direct now. Mm -hmm. um, some of the organizations that are using Direct, uh, that are also provider organizations, are Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. is a member of Direct Trust, Intermountain right. Healthcare, the Tenant Healthcare System. Um, Advocate Health System, Sutter Health System. We have a, a, a mix in our membership of providers of health care services via direct, like SureScripts, MedAllies, uh -huh. companies that are actually providing the channels, the connection, right. and then healthcare provider organizations who are using them mm -hmm. uh, to increasingly provide other providers' information, like, for example, referral management is, a, is a starting to become a major Big use. One. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then we're also seeing millions of transactions occur from electronic health records to repositories of, of data. For example, quality measurement uh, mm -hmm. repositories, uh, biosurveillance. Um, you know, every electronic health record can output a CCDA formatted, that is a, an XML formatted clinical summary, mm -hmm. and can do so via direct. So the databases that collect that information are starting to say, we can get that information out of the electronic health record more easily than we could via fax or VPN or other right. dedicated lines. And just use direct for it. Use direct. And so, obviously the big issue, everyone's talking security, I mean, we get these big breaches and stuff like that. Um, how do you, is, 
is this something that over time you've got to continue to modify and look at what the latest is in terms of the technology or things like that, or is it? Well, the direct trust community has been out ahead of this curve mm -hmm. for quite some time, partly because we have had to adopt identity management. Mm -hmm. So the one of the missing pieces in the security has always been identity management. Are you sure that whoever is sending you a message or is that you're receiving a message from is who they say they are in cyberspace. Most of these, the great majority of these hacks have occurred uh, from somebody spoofing the identity of some other right. person. And in the direct trust network, that's virtually impossible. The, the, the direct address, you know, your name at direct dot your hospital or your medical practice or your wherever, um, is bound to a what's called a digital certificate. Uh -huh. And that digital certificate in real time can be verified by the parties. So it would be not impossible, but very difficult, very difficult to, to spoof to get a, an identity. And if it were spoofed, then that certificate can be revoked immediately. Right, and then you can pull it out of the system. Yeah. Pull it out of the system. Yeah. So um, th th we've, we've been on a, a, that learning curve within our community because early on, I mean, six years ago, we had to face this problem of how do you send a message to another party and that party be assured that it's coming from who, 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 who they think it's coming mm -hmm. from. Um, and, and so we've been um, very fortunate. Now, we don't store. Direct Trust doesn't right. store any data either. Right. So we, we, we haven't been... Uh, we haven't been faced with those kinds of problems of storage. But I, I think you're going to see uh, the issue of strong assurance of identity with transactions of any kind um, that are interoperable become more and more of an issue. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a critical piece of it, as you pointed out. And you sort of take away, I mean, you know, for a while we've had this whole problem of people not willing to share the data that they've got within their various systems. And they and oftentimes you'd hear an excuse, well, maybe it's not a secure this or that, and that's why I ain't going to do it. But you sort of have solved that. I mean, that problem. And so really, the, the reasons, some a lot of these reasons to not set up these systems to really become interoperable are gone when you use direct trust. That's correct. I mean, under fee-for-service, there still is no strong, in most cases, no strong business case for interoperation. You know, I, I'm a healthcare organization. I go to great lengths to collect this information on my patients. Why would I give that information to somebody else? On the other hand, if you're in any kind of value-based care environment, mm -hmm. or even if you're simply trying to, to because of the, the local um, uh, desires of your organization, trying to manage populations of patients, you have to think about how you can move data across organizational boundaries and health IT boundaries. So I'm a hospital system, I'm doing referral management, for example. Well, I may use a particular EHR in my hospital system, but the doctors who are in the primary care practices outside that hospital use 15 or 20 different <laughs> exactly. EHRs, right? So in that environment, then you really need to have a way to cross those barriers with a standard, and that's what uh -huh. direct us. And I would assume that this standard can also have no difference to be, you want to link up all those social organizations and the not-for-profits to be begin to share data in this broader population health, community-based social determinants of health approach, right? The fastest growing groups of parties that are uh, joining the Direct Trust Network are not hospitals. Fantastic. They're long-term care facilities, uh -huh. um, home health, um, state and local departments of public health, uh, and these are entities that are part of the uh, extended healthcare system, but were not part of the meaningful use programs, and may not use electronic health records. 
but they can still share information through this. They can. They, wow. they can use applications, web-based applications, to uh, send and receive direct messages just as securely as though they were using an electronic health record. Yeah, and in particular, as you think about it, when you start putting in these value-based programs and you're doing population health, and you're trying to coordinate care across this broad network, this would be a great way to communicate out with all those various community providers who who may be a small not-for-profit, but you need them to help provide a service for a person or something like that. Right. So so what we're seeing develop, and I'm, I'm encouraged, it's still going to be a few years, but we're seeing not only direct serve as a tool for moving data across these boundaries securely, but we also have FHIR, which uh -huh. is a, right. a, a way of querying information in electronic. Uh, you may have, you've, I'm sure you've heard about Apple's use of FHIR in certain institutions to allow patients from their Apple iPhones to access the information that's in their patient portal accounts. I actually tried to do that. Unfortunately, there isn't a Jacksonville, Florida hospital that's joined that network yet, so please get that one done. <laughs> but yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's, that's uh, the trend. Now, yeah. I, I think in any value-based environment where the hospital system or the, 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 the providers in that community are under some kind of accountability and some mm -hmm. kind of risk, uh, the business case for interoperable exchange suddenly becomes more um, important. And the costs of not being interoperability start to become important. And the costs of using fax and paper and courier start to become more important. Absolutely. So we've seen, we've seen uh, hospitals using direct for referral management cut the delays for patients to get their appointments in those specialty practices or imaging centers cut in half wow. because they're no longer using fax. Yeah. So they're getting they're getting real time or close to real time communications between those practices and the referral management center. It's sort of the the uh, gathering storm of value based care, population health management, individuals wanting more information about themselves, and this need to sh share this data across that makes something like this the time is ripe for something like this to just continue to take off. That's right. I, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I don't think the perfect storm. We're, no, it's a okay. gathering storm, right? Okay, we'll it, give it the gathering storm. But it's one, not yeah. perfect yet. Yeah. But but I, I am very optimistic. We are seeing um, mm -hmm. people focus on uh, what what makes sense clinically, and then what makes what's the business case for doing that, mm -hmm. and uh, and how can we do better economically by providing better care. The whole the whole idea which was started 30 years ago, perhaps, in healthcare with, with Don Berwick and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, is that yeah. you can do well by providing good quality. Right. That's starting to come back. Good. Yeah. Well, fascinating. It's great to have you again, David. All right. I really good appreciate your you. time. Yeah. Thanks so much for stopping by here at the World Healthcare Congress. And we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. So thank you very much. Good. The Dr. Nick Vanterhayden. It's a pleasure to have you here. I, I'm glad you say that because I, I really want to own that uh, trademark. So it's the Dr. Nick and the Dr. Nick, the incrementalist and whiskey librarian. And as far as I'm concerned, they're all yours. You <laughs> own them all. I have ceded any control I had over any of those that have absolutely no relationship to me. Other than I, I do like the, uh, what was the last one you had? The whiskey librarian. The whiskey librarian. Uh, good whiskey is always good. I'm just going to say that uh, I, I shared a little bit of that over the weekend with... Uh, some of your uh, compatriots, and uh, I think they had a good time. I think you introduced them to some new flavors. I certainly did. So that's fantastic, and you qu clearly have taught me a few too. I'm a good single malt <laughs> lover, so it's nice to well, have you. have you. to come round. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that's what they learned. So uh, it's great to have you here, and um, tell us a little bit what you think about the conference so far. 
So I, I think one of the most striking things uh, to me is that uh, I walked around the show floor and there's this extraordinary number of startup companies. In fact, I took a, a sort of slow-mo video to, to give people a sense of how many companies keep emerging and trying to muscle their way into this healthcare space. That's good news because it means people are interested. It's good news because it's external thinkers and people that don't have the same baggage that we all have from living and breathing this healthcare system. Um, and it's exciting because I think it will bring new ideas, new concepts, and I, I think some of the ways that we practice medicine and the things that we do, um, we can't even imagine what's going to change uh, two years from now with all of that insight and innovation that's coming into this space. So did you see any of them that you found interesting? Um, I, I've got to be honest, I didn't have enough time <laughs> to uh, jump in and spend a little bit of time with each of them. Uh, I saw three or four telehealth providers, which uh, you, you know is a good indication of you know the value proposition if there's that many companies um, I saw a company that was very intriguing to me epigenetics mm -hmm. um, you know one of the things that we know is that we are not a product of our genes I think people are terrified of this concept of uh, genetics and you know this is my profile therefore this is what I will be um, we already know today if I sequenced you now today or in fact at birth I could extend your life and the quality of your life by a minimum of eight years based on the science that we have today. Um, so the idea that we can start to bring epigenetics into health. So give me some healthcare. examples of that. How to extend your life? Yeah, based on my genetics. Uh, more single malt whiskey, clearly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it will be a good life, too. <laughs> and I would say it would be an incremental amount. But just <laughs> so how much do I get for the whiskey? That's what I want. How much more how, life how do many, I get? How many life, uh, yeah, life points? Quality life years. What is the quality? Yeah. Uh, so the interesting thing about alcohol, and uh, to be clear, I'm not yeah. advocating alcohol or advice not to be deemed medical. You know, the usual disclaimers. But the, the interesting thing about alcohol... Um, is that a small amount on a regular basis actually improves our life expectancy. Um, I, I, can't t I, I can't give you a precise number mm -hmm. because obviously that varies by individual. Um, we're not even sure why. Some of it may just simply be that it's helping with the relaxation, mm -hmm. stress relief. Drop stress. All, all of Maybe those things. Maybe you get some of those stress hormones dropped out. And Absolutely. I know I and certainly And the cardiac disease risks associated yeah. with increased stress. Um, we've known for a long time that red wine has an associated... Um, element of uh, cardioprotectiveness that we think is associated with Reservatrol. That's the compound yep. that maybe it is. Um, but interestingly, if I give you Reservatrol, we don't get the same effect. Good news if you like wine, just to be clear. But yeah. um, So, I, you know, it, it, it's simple things like that. And what that are some of the other examples that would maybe be non-alcohol related about you've run my genome. Hey, Fred, do a couple of different things. This will make you live a little longer. So, um, you know, let's think of specific examples um, around some of the insights that are the, a little bit more uh, advanced than, gosh, you need more exercise or uh -huh. you should reduce your calorie intake or, you know, all of those things I think we know and generically they give us some insights. I think one of the most intriguing things that I've started to see is the potential to uh, gain insight into the gut biome. So mm -hmm. historically, 
What did we know about the gut biome? Well, there was a bunch of bacteria that were in there, uh, 20, 20 or so, um, and they were contributing to digestion. Now we're starting to sequence it. We can see variations in the biome based on the sequencing that's both very uh, low cost and it's very fast. So what does that offer us? It means that I can now look at your biome and say, well, gosh, Fred, in your particular instance, your diet isn't the same as mine. I, you know, radical thoughts. So, you yeah. know, it's no longer the pyramid that everybody says and the pyramids changed. You know, the idea that, you know, high fat, low carb or whatever the particular fat is that we're dealing with today is appropriate for, for the whole population. Quite frankly, in, in you know, in the, the perspective of what we know today is preposterous. It's yeah. completely mad. So now we can start to customize that based on what your biome mm -hmm. already has. And we can customize your biome to change the way that you're digesting food and reacting to it. So some examples of that, um, you know, I've noticed in my own family that we as individuals react differently to different diets. So we've gone on uh, a variety of sort of uh, exercises and journeys with mm -hmm. full vegan uh, for the yeah. whole family. Worked for some of the family, didn't work so well for others. Um, and it, f it turns out that, um, you know, excluding dairy in particular instances was very beneficial for some, not for others. I have Dutch genes. The Dutch have been consuming dairy for centuries. It's a, a core Good component. So. Yeah, absolutely. Flying. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Gosh, we're Nederlands speaking now. Yeah, kind of klein beetje Nederlands spreken. Yeah, Kevin Forberg gewoond in 1984. Wow. Thank you well. So, you know, for me, didn't work so I think that customization you know which some of it is influenced by the history that contributed yeah. to that um, is going to change the way that we start to give advice that's really exciting so this is really kind of the population health precision medicine merger to get to an end of one of your assessment to risk stratify you and then tell you here's exactly what we need to or you need to do to improve your health and and, and isn't that what we all want absolutely because the other thing that, that i think that gives just based on a limited amount of experiences if you if you refine the advice down to the individual guess what not only is that advice better in terms of outcomes but it's actually more palatable and it tends to be more successful because you like Great it point you know, so it, it, it's going to get you far further down the track of extended high quality life. That's really exciting. Yeah, it is. So I'm going to steer you a little different here, Nick. You, I, I watched your comments on LinkedIn, Twitter. You, you are sort of, and I'll say this in all due respect, and I like this. It's a way I like to think of how to do it. You're sort of a renaissance guy. You're looking at space stuff and astronomy and whiskey and all these other areas. And I would assume you can take some things you see from there and say, how does that fit in healthcare? Is that true yeah so that's absolutely right and I, I you know one of the things that I've I've heard from certainly purist marketing folks is I'm too diluted too scattered <laughs> I get that same thing. and you know I respect that I mean I think it, it's hard to sort of focus and it's hard you know sometimes it's hard to put me in a box and we all like to do that yeah. not, not in a negative way but you know we like to catch
categorize people based on characteristics and in some respects that's hard for me it's easy on one you know a single dimension I'm a physician great so you know got that but then beyond that it extends much further and whilst I respect that, one of the value propositions and some of the, the real innovation and what I've seen in incremental improvements is when you bring together these disparate kind of thought processes and thinking, you see this in some of the innovation hubs. I saw it at Carnegie Mellon. Um, mm-hmm. I interviewed some folks and, you know, they'd come up with this astoundingly I, I want to say simple, I don't want to diminish it, idea. Yeah. Why not take liver cells inject them into the body and have your body create its own liver. It does that actually in the the lymphocyte system. It sounds simple at this point, but you know, the insight of that came from the merger of two different people that had different scientific backgrounds and research. And we've now got the potential to produce organs by simply injecting cells into people. And guess what? There's no rejection phenomenon associated with that because they're your liver cells, you know? So imagine that for other cell systems. Mm -hmm. So bringing together all of that insight, I think, delivers this incredible opportunity. And and what I've discovered, and one of the reasons... So partly I'm selfish. Mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated by all this stuff. I love space, love, you know, the the, the concept of us in this universe is just mind-blowing to me. (laughs) I love malt whiskey, so hell, I'll throw that in just for fun. Um, But bringing all of that in allows me to sort of come up with insights that ordinarily I might not have done. And and what I hope to do is to stimulate that in others by exposing them. Yes. I think if we're too narrow, we limit both our human potential and the potential for society. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as you look at these grand things like space and uh, some of the other areas, you know, I'm, I'm interested in CRISPR and these other things, you talk about... Yeah, it's great to think that big baby down the road, but it's all about little incremental changes. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the incremental improvement. Uh, you know, occasionally I get into spats with folks online, you know, <laughs> respectfully, but, you know, no, we want the moonshot, we want this, we want that. I think we all want the moonshot. But the reality is that in almost all the instances, that eureka moment that we always reference back to... Um, didn't actually happen as a eureka moment. If you go and analyze the Uber and the Airbnb, it wasn't this point at which these three guys got together over Scottish malt whiskey um, and came up with a concept of, hey, we should change the, the taxi system or the transportation system. It was a series of small little incremental changes that add up to that. And that's my premise. And the only difference between the moonshot or or this exponential is a time factor. So if you do those incremental improvements on a rapid speed cycle, you get to this exponential change, you do so faster, and you do so at less risk with incremental improvements. Right, and I look at it from the point of view that to bring a group together, or to say we, to create this mission, kind of like Kennedy did, we want to get there. So you put that out there as the vision and you build those pieces in, recognizing we're going to go here to there. So what are those little things we need to do? Especially on these grander things, and in healthcare, I think it's important. We've got a major, major problems we need to fix, whether it's the diabetes issue, it's the opioid issue. And in essence, if you can say, we're going to wrap our team around getting there, 
And now how do we do that step by step by step, I think is a good way to bring the two together. I, I, you know, of course, I love that analogy because probably like you, I grew up on that space program, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, the, the, the reach, you know, what that drove, the, the innovation that it created. But that's exactly right. It was these small things that, you know, in hindsight, we look back on and Velcro and Tang and, you know, the things <laughs> that everybody knows about, you know, good Lord, none of that would have happened. Well, right. I'm sure it would it at some right. point, but not in the same sort of rapidity. Yeah. And, and, and that was an astounding achievement in 10 years. It was oh, sub 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that goal setting, the other thing that's key to that mm-hmm. um, and, you know, to, to, to deliver against that incremental improvement is you have to have a leader that leads that doesn't drive so they have to be out front showing people the direction and the vision and I think that's what we saw in that particular president Mm -hmm. he was capable of marshalling the resources people got behind him Um, and you know that's what we need in healthcare is individuals that will lead that set that big goal but ultimately find those small steps and support it and understand that they're not all going to be correct. No, you're going to make mistakes on the way and go right, and then you got to come back left and, and iterate, as you said, over and over until you get there. And it's interesting because I was just in Mississippi, and my, my presentation you may have seen was SpaceX moonshots and diabetes in Mississippi. And what I talked about was, how, was a, a way to say, could we take a decade or two and seek to eradicate type 2 lifestyle-based diabetes in the state? How would you do that, and what pieces would you need to get there? And hopefully, as you said, you know, with President Kennedy, I, I asked this question, where is the Elon Musk of healthcare? Right. You know, who is the person that said, he said, I'm going to Mars, and his first vision was actually, I'm going to drop a greenhouse on Mars just to get people excited about right. space again. I, just I, fascinating. Absolutely. It's, you know, set that sort of far-reaching vision and then enable people and and the thing about the small changes and the incremental improvements is it's low risk because if you make a small change and it's incorrect (laughs) you you've you've lost so much less in the sequencing of all of that and that's important because we, we don't have the resources to waste so we don't want to sort of extend that unnecessarily and I think the other point you brought up sort of in the closing here was you look outside to all these other things you brought in all these other thought areas and if we're going to solve some of these big problems we have in healthcare we need to bring in people outside of healthcare to help us think through some of those things there may be some great answers from people out there to help us do this I, I, it, it's inevitable and the thing about healthcare is it's personal so if if you get these folks involved, it's not that they come in with no knowledge. Sure, they have limited knowledge because their perspective typically is as a patient. But, you know, the value of that contribution without the baggage of, you know, existing clinical activity is an imperative in all of this. And, and everybody wants to get involved. We all want to fix it. Yeah. It's not as if people wake up in the morning saying, how can I fleece out healthcare? How can I break the system? You know, how can I deliver awful care? That's not the case. Yeah, I just, I don't buy it. I buy that people come out with the best possible intentions. Yeah. And if they don't deliver against that, the system has failed them and we have to fix the system and enable them to deliver better solutions. Well, fascinating. Thank you so much for joining again, Dr. Nick. It's wonderful to talk to you. It actually makes my day, so I really appreciate it. And we'll have to get you back on. All right. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I guess we'll be going to the good Dr. Brian Klepper here next.
uh, another friend of mine, and uh, Brian uh, came in yesterday, and I've been involved with him on the Health Value Awards, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that. It was a big deal uh, last night. We actually had the winners, so we'll bring Brian in here for our uh, next 15 minutes or so. Hey, Brian, it's a pleasure hey to have you, as always. Hey there. Great to get you in. Uh, you surviving all the stuff you're having to do here it's at the a conference? It's intense. Just slightly, I can imagine. <laughs> well, yeah, it's fun, but you've it's been, fine. You've been going like crazy for the last couple of months, just getting ready to the awards right. and get all that done and organized, which was unbelievable. We'll get into some of that. And now you have, we had the awards. We'll talk about that. And then now you're still involved with the conference, or you're just catching up with people. No, I'm still involved with the conference. I'm I'm chairing sessions tomorrow, and um, uh, there's a lot to follow up with. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's been fascinating. It's actually quite good. I think we've, we've assembled a group of people who really are about value, and we've showcased them. And now what? And now what? Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it's been amazing to watch. I mean, what was it, maybe a year ago or less, We start, you and Vidar started talking about awards. Yeah. The, the awards, or what do we do to the highlight thing, these people? Yeah. yeah. The awards thing was Vidar's idea, and it's uh-huh. a great idea. I mean, the, the problem is is that everybody, as you know, everybody in healthcare, you know, can't tell the truth if, it, if their life depended on it. <laughs> and and in, in industries like wellness and disease management, people would make exorbitant claims, and none of it was true. Right. And so, we, we, so everybody now is, is claiming they deliver value. So we thought it was a, it would be a good idea to try to to try to find a process to vet whether people actually do deliver value, and 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 shine a bright light on the ones that actually are, and and it and it was a it's an imperfect process. This mm-hmm. was the first year. I don't think we did everything right, but but I think it'll it's it's established. It, it came out okay, and it'll get better over time. Yeah, from my perspective, it was a fantastic first go. It was great, and I actually I was kind of blown away last night. As a judge, I didn't realize there would be multiple awards in these categories. So there were, and because there were a lot of people who deserved to be recognized. And it was like Little League, everybody gets an award. <laughs> but it wasn't quite because there wasn't everybody. And, we, right. and you had a lot of applicants, which was also fascinating. You always wonder yeah, when you kick true. one of these babies off, are people going to even apply to this thing? But they got it. And, and there were a ton to go through, and obviously you had to go through them. And some, some, of, them were, some of them were absolutely fabulous. You know, like like um, Arvind um, Arvind Eye Institute, Eye Institute yeah. you know, did 1.4 million cataract procedures last year, mostly to poor people in India. I mean, how can you not like that? Right. And they've got a rigorous process coming, coming, coming in. And then there was um, Walmart's pr- proposal on on engagement and well-being. Mm-hmm. Walmart pro- in their in their application lays out a thesis and says, well, we, we want to first figure out whether it makes sense to, to have a well-being program. Is it actually going to turn into better well-being for, for patients and if it's, uh, for, for, for their members? And if it's better for their members, is it actually good for Walmart? Right. And they methodically went through that and said, well, first of all, we dispense with the idea that people follow information. We don't think they do. They, we think that they follow other people. So let's use that as the operating premise, and then they then they show with data that it's good for the it's good for the members and it's good for Walmart when they do it. Right. It was like it was beautiful, you know. And and you know. So he, he, now Walmart is admittedly a really big company with lots of resources and everything, but it was elegant. And but it, they also don't have to necessarily commit that time. They recognize at the end of the day it actually was a business imperative, and they could document absolutely, the stuff, which absolutely. was great. It was it, and. 
and you can't help if you're in our position and you were a judge. Yeah. You, you can't help but just admire that. Right. And and there were a lot of organizations. I mean, there were there were some applications where you go, yeah, meh, you know, like so what. Right. <laughs> you know, but but there were some where you go, oh my goodness. No, there's some great work out there, and I think it was so interesting because you know, Vidar, I think really started this as a way to say, I want to highlight these companies so others can learn, so others can recognize there is a better way to do healthcare that can be patient centric, that can get better outcomes and lower costs at the same time. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, that's the goal. Um, you know, I. He's hired me as an advisor, and I'm working. I'm working closely with World Congress, and we're going to build on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that's in the works is to create sort of a a a, uh, a marketplace mm-hmm. where where we have a lot of information about about or each organization in a templated fashion that'll look like an Amazon page for for a product. Uh huh. Has has here's here's the way that all the information is presented. The company can put in a video about about what they do and, and what what they're doing. So let's say that you're in the market for an analytics platform. Yeah. You can go you can go to this marketplace and get the information on twenty different organizations that all offer an, analytics. Fantastic. And, and compare compare them. Yeah, I think it's a real real advance and the the, the question is, as you saw yesterday, I mean, we kept harping on this question yesterday. We had a we had a room full of employer benefits managers, of benefits advisors. I would say, you, I like your term room full. There were actually almost people up the walls. I've never been in a room <laughs> that they had to redo it, get everyone out, put in more chairs, take the tables out, and then they were still up against the walls. Right, right. It was packed. <laughs> it was and, packed. And so we had we had the benefits managers, we had the brokers, and then we had innovative vendors. And they were all coming together and they were all, you know, pushing the same ideas. And the question is, you know, this is a very tantalizing idea. I mean if I mean it if let let's say that you've got you know, an organization like Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. Uh-huh. Okay, and let's say, I mean, the data show from like their from their experience with Michelin and companies like that that they reduce musculoskeletal spend, which is about twenty percent of total spend, by half. So let's say that that would be ten percent, but let let's say that they they come in at eight percent or seven percent. Right. I mean, that's a big number. And oh yeah. And and if you can come in with, if you can come in, if you're Amazon and you offer integrated musculoskeletal care to people and you're going to end up paying 30% less than you would pay, pay otherwise and, and eliminate a lot of surgeries and other stuff, you know, that would blow apart a good part of how the health system is currently built. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's so fascinating that I, that I think is starting to begin to resonate, and clearly it started a couple of years ago with the work you were doing and Vito doing this stuff, is this whole concept of, you guys quit talking about Ben Trend. We can take money right out of that top and actually spend less. That's, that's I think, the thing. I mean, I mean, the math shows very conservatively. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're the most conservative and the most rigorous, the math shows that it's possible to, to drop healthcare costs by probably 40%. So let's cut that number in half. I mean, if you could come in and guarantee an employer that they would pay 20% less and get better health outcomes documented and financially guarantee that, that would change how healthcare works. Absolutely. And just think about that from the country perspective. That's $600 billion. Yeah. Did right. the 20%, you know? Absol- absolutely. Unbelievable. So it's a, it's a very tantalizing idea. If I were... I mean, 
first, first of all, I think it's a fair bet that the Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, J.P. Morgan guys, they're thinking like this. Absolutely. That That's number one. Number two is, if I were an Aetna or, a, or, a, or an Express Scripts PBM, I'd be concerned. But you know what's so interesting about that? I don't know if you were in the panel in this morning's sessions. No, I was. Aetna was up there and the others, and they literally talked about, I'll, I'll pause, I'll pause, what's his name, who from Aetna said, we we got to take the 30% of health care waste, fraud, and abuse out and apply it to the social determinants. And he must have said that five times. So even they are beginning to recognize it's there. Now, the question obviously is... Will they? There you go. Or, or, or <laughs> I mean, if they do that, does it lower does it lower their per, their 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 member earnings, yeah. which in turn would lower their stock price and lower their market cap. And, and as I talked about, if you ultimately change this stuff too, what is the role then of a hospital? Do they lose their power base because they suddenly don't have these patients in there? There's a lot of dynamics in this oh, thing. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, when when you put in when a big company puts in integrated musculoskeletal care, the data show that that musculoskeletal surgeries drop by 74%. You know, with better outcomes. I mean. That's got to be daunting. Oh yeah, and 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 they went through a big process so, in So let's say you're a provider and you want to do this. You're gonna say I'm gonna do it. How do you survive? Do you have to just say I'm gonna move to cap and then make it off of savings? Well, or I mean, first of all, it depends on whether you're, you're a provider and you say I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna continue to be fee for service and, and, well, and let, adhere to well, the old. Well, you really way. can't do it under fee for service because. If, if, if IMC comes in or something, they're going to knock the business out. So you're a hospital out there, and you suddenly lose 70% of your orthopedic surgeries. Yeah, I think it's I a think big it, deal. I think at that point, then you need to convert, and you need to you need to go go maybe on cap to keep populations healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's better at the population health stuff than you, and and put a put a, a business model out there that captures the entire community mm-hmm. through the hospital to. To, to do things better, but to do that, you got to get away from doing a lot of unnecessary, unnecessary stuff. stuff. So, as an employer out there, where do the where can the employers go to find out this information? That's it, a good question. Because is is <laughs> it something you're going to put up? They can go get a hold of you through right. what's your website? Uh, WorksiteHealthAdvisors.com, but they can see a lot on the on the on the World Congress website on the Employers Health Congress. Web, website. Well, a lot of those companies are featured. Obviously, look at the award winners. Look, look at which yeah. Go to go to healthvalueawards.org, uh-huh. and you'll you'll see the finalists and the winners, and that's a good place to start. And we had Dave Chase on earlier, you know, with the Health Rosetta, and talked about his book and stuff. And you, it's sort of this coming together of these various groups and minds about how to solve this problem. Dave has made a contribution that I think is beyond anybody's estimation. I, you know. He's he's done something that really matters, um, and um, actually, I was I was ribbing him, and I said, you know, Dave, nobody's actually read your book. They read my forward, and then they go, okay, I get it, and then they then they move on. But but um, I mean, one of the things that Dave has done that that matters is he has created a a credential for brokers uh-huh. that say. Okay, I promise I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to disclose all the places where my money comes from, and I'm going to I'm going to show my performance and stuff like that. I mean, if a, if a, if a parallel effort were were put together for for employers to say I'm only going to work with credentialed 
credential brokers, mm -hmm. that would be very powerful. Right. And and that would be a leg up. But there has to be there has to be a hook. There has to be some way that it's really good for the brokers to mm -hmm. do this because otherwise the money's too good. Right. So at the end of the day I guess CEOs need to say to themselves, we can make a difference. We need to make a difference and reach out to folks like you and your group and some of these brokers and companies and bring those services in. Yeah, you know, I, I started going down that path years ago, but I think Dave has done a better job. Dave Chase has done a better job of really expressing how dire this is and how, mm -hmm. how much it matters to the security of the country. Um, if, I were an, if I were an employer and I thought deeply about it, this is something that I absolutely have to do, and the, the only way to what we need is leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, we we need people to 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 do by example, but we also need them to go to reach out to other people and get and, them to do it. And finally, just one nice plug: the Rosen Hotels. Last night, watching Harry Rosen get two Diamond Awards, he was just blown away for all the work they've done we with talked, his employees. We talked about that. We talked about that, and, and I think you know. We agreed that he deserved it. Yeah. You know, I mean, and what he's done is remarkable. Absolutely. I'm not sure that what he's done is translatable to a different kind of population. Well, and also his culture. His culture. Very, very paternalistic. Yeah. You know, but it worked for that but, you, but it does show people. you could do it, maybe take some of those ideas like you, you've aggregated together in all these companies Absolutely. you found, and we can do some of this stuff. There's no way not to say that that's what he's done is incredibly admirable. Absolutely. And and he deserved to have a bright light shine. That was fantastic. On. Yeah. I mean, it, there's something that's very nice about all this. <laughs> it was. It was great. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to get on to the next one, Brian. So okay. thank you so much for Thanks, joining Brad. us. And I'll, I know I'll be seeing you around some more at the conference. Congrats Bye. again on that Health Value Awards. It was well done. Fantastic event. You're welcome. You are most welcome. So we're back here in the booth now. I've got my next guest coming in. Hello, Tatiana. How are you? Good. Well, come on in. Get a little over here. We make sure we hear you well. So welcome to the show here. Tell me a little bit about your company and what you do. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Um, so my, I'm uh, the founder and CEO of Open Health Network. We are patient experience management platform. So when you say a patient experience management platform, what does that mean? It means that we really think that when um, any, anyone is talking about patient care, they need to be able to give patient-centered solutions, such as I strongly believe that they need to enable patients to communicate the communication channel of their choice, not, you know, oh, here's an app or here's the chatbot, A, so patients should be able to choose how they want to communicate. Mm -hmm. They should be able to go from one communication channel to another one and make sure that the data they entered the one communication channel, if they responded to something via chatbot and they go to the app, the data goes with them. Secondly, I strongly believe that there is no such a thing as a generic solution for patients so uh -huh. if you don't have solution that personalized for each patient then you will lose them because mm -hmm. you know there is no such a thing as generic you know cancer patient or even breast cancer patient mm -hmm. so if we really care about patients we need to think about all those things uh-huh 
So tell me how the system works. Um, the easiest way to describe it is that imagine that you have a set of Legos. Uh -huh. And every Lego is configurable, customizable. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to enable payers, providers, pharma, anybody who is doing anything in healthcare to create what they need in the most efficient, reliable way, as fast as they can, at the same time, give them the most advanced technologies that will enable all those things we talked about. Because mm -hmm. we have the same back end for any communication channel. So inherently, we enable uh, anyone in healthcare to deploy chatbot, app, voice, with integrated backend where you provide all those consistent experiences. B, we give content management systems. So if you have a new survey, new information about treatment, you don't need to call developers. You can go and update it, right? We have personalization engine. We have data sharing engine. So we have all those things. And I'm all about agile. So how I can make it easier for people who know what needs to be done mm -hmm. to do those things in the most efficient, relevant way. Mm -hmm. So who are, who is, is this something that the physicians buy, the hospitals buy? Who? Who's purchasing your platform? Uh, anyone can do it. So we have uh, customers such as UCSF who build uh, the best um, uh, uh, app, for example, for addictions and mm. uh, American Heart Association. The app, My Cardiac Coach, yeah. is used consistently by over 10,000 people who had heart attack right. and they use it uh, five minutes a day, every day, with 60% of repeat. Um, wow. visits exactly uh -huh. wow so we have uh, customers who are using it for autism cancer so, so it can be pretty much anything it's white labeled so, so they just build on top of your structure and your Lego system this app to engage individuals in whatever that condition or disease state might be yeah they provide content and build um, imagine that you don't you can create what you need chatbot, voice, uh -huh. app, web, integrated with EMR, with any wearable, with capability of sharing data via blockchain. All that without writing single line of code. So their staff can actually put, you talked about adding content or putting a survey up there. They can go into the system, I guess there's a back-end administrative portal or something like yes, that, yes. and they go ahead and do that. And in, in once they do that, you automatically update content everywhere. So from one point, with approvals, with permissions. But what fascinates me, what I love about this architecture, it's a decision, it's an architectural decision for the company, mm -hmm. that on the back end, you suddenly can have access to integrated data sets mm -hmm. across many diseases, many conditions that you can analyze, and you can write predictive modeling in a more meaningful way. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, you know, many people, right. especially if we're talking about chronic diseases, they have more than one condition. Absolutely. My father, he had diabetes, heart attack, uh, and uh, hypertension. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 So, so what's your background? Okay, so my background is very diverse. So um, I, um, I have master's in computer sciences. Then I spent 10 years at Pricewaterhouse 
from early days of SAP, so I worked with CEOs of Fortune 50, uh -huh. looking at their business processes, efficiencies, and how technology can help to solve business issues. And I worked across so many different industries, from automotive to hospitality and so on. So I can see uh, relations and similarities, yeah. though everybody thinks that the industry is super unique. Right. So I looked at the core business processes and I was dealing with, you know, sitting at the call center, General Motors, looking, you know, listening and improving business processes on the customer service side, or uh, helping IT to solve, you know, IT issues. Mm -hmm. So I can see correlations that people who are too deep in the industry, they don't see and they don't see how they can utilize know-how that have been solved elsewhere. elsewhere. Which is what I just was talking about with Nick two people ago, bringing in these disparate sources from outside of healthcare to apply yeah. them and make the system better. Exactly. When I tell people, then when I was sitting with top researchers in automotive industry, trying to predict car failures mm -hmm. and analyzing correlation of what type of signals can potentially lead to what type of failure and impact of external conditions such as weather, driving uphill. Like, we're solving these problems in healthcare. It's very similar. We're taking all kinds of signals from wearables, from that and that and that. Mm -hmm. We're analyzing and trying to predict certain yep. diseases. And it's also, we have external factors, we have radiation, we have uh, mm -hmm. lifestyle, we have diet, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very similar. So we should be able to use certain things that we're trying to solve in different industries because mm -hmm. they, despite common belief, they might have relevance. Right, no, that's, that's fascinating. And so when did you start the company? Um, well, some people start companies for, you know, very different reasons. I started my company, like, before I got my cancer surgery, when I was diagnosed with cancer. Uh -huh. And I decided that all my experiences working with many industries on intersection of technologies and business processes, and me being caregiver to my parents for a long time, and now, you know, me being a cancer patient, I decided that that's where I want to spend my time right. bringing common sense and uh, remove deficiencies in the industry that um, basically mm -hmm. needs that. Absolutely. And so, wh where do you take this product next? Do you have any ideas for some other things you might be integrating, or is it pretty much ready to go? And there's because you've got the predictive analytics, you've got the chat yeah. and everything else. Yeah, we, we have, you know, and platform has been successfully used. We launched um, in 2015 at the mm -hmm. White House Demo Day. Uh -huh. Since that, we have super successful deployments across many diseases. Mm -hmm. And we're just releasing a very powerful feature that will allow patients to have a full control of their healthcare data that they capture within mm -hmm. apps, really at the field level, and it's revocable. Oh, so great. they can share with family, with physicians, with um, other patients, whoever they want to share with, and it's revocable, it's fully traceable, they can see who and how, and if they will decide that they want to participate in clinical trial research, they can make money out of their data uh -huh. directly. Oh, so it's a very powerful platform that we're just adding on top of everything else that uh, we've released so uh -huh. far. And if people want to learn more, where do they go? They go to openhealth.cc. 
openhealth.cc. Yes. And it's all up there on the website. It's all on the website. And they can reach out and essentially they can build a product on your framework. Yes, rapidly. And the key in everything, you know, I've, I've led large teams for many, many years doing very complex things. The key is to move away from anything waterfall and move completely into Agile where we can bring meaningful solutions fast and have a capability of adding on. Right. So from MVP, you know, and, yeah. and I I consider ourselves not just being, you know, solution provider, but really partner where we can, we, we share our experiences where we deploy very complex things mm-hmm. and make it so our customers become successful. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really great to have you and congratulations on the product. Sounds wonderful, I'm gonna be checking it out. Thank you so much. So uh, that was really fascinating. Uh, Talk to one of the tech companies here. And uh, now it looks like I am going to be joined by Jessica Brooks. Hello, Jessica. How are you? How are you? Great to have you in here. Thank you. And we are broadcasting live here from the World Healthcare Congress across this podcast and and being videoed as well. So how do you feel about that, Jessica? You know what? I'm a little nervous. Oh, no need to be. And excited at the same time. It's like one of those days. You're like a pro at this, so it's all good. I do. I speak to a lot of people I know you do, and I've heard you speak, and you're great. Thank you. I appreciate the confidence. It's a pleasure to have you here. Tell Thank us what's you. going on with you and at uh, BBGH, the stuff you're doing. Oh my goodness. It's, you know what, healthcare is a whirlwind right now. Very exciting and dynamic and I tell people all the time, if you're not excited about change and if you're <laughs> not okay with change, you're probably in the wrong place. <laughs> so um, we're growing significantly at PBGH. Uh, we have a lot of great initiatives, education. Our uh-huh. education platform is dynamic and We've gone virtual with really helping to provide greater access to education for employers who are excited about becoming more savvy and sophisticated. My vision and PBGH's vision um, is that we create the most sophisticated, savvy, disruptive purchasers of healthcare in the country and that we become, you know, a focal point that will help purchasers across the nation take bold moves. And so that's our goal. It's fantastic. And I should point out to our audience that you are the CEO, is that correct? Yes. Uh, of the Pittsburgh Business Group on Health. So for those I who am. I keep saying PBGH, it's the Pittsburgh Business Group yes. on Health. Yes, there's a couple well known PBGHs, around the country but we're, yes. As a very <laughs> dynamic, as you said, dynamic organization trying to make a difference. We are. And so talk about the group and your membership. So we are an employer-led coalition uh-huh. uh, made up of over 98 non-healthcare industry employers. We do have an additional uh, 40 or so employers members who are healthcare industry, brokers, consultants, pharma, um, health plans. But our core and our priority is the employer, um, not healthcare industry employer. Uh, we have 98 employer members, mostly self-insured. 80% of our members are self-insured. Our average size employer has about 5,000 employees. Uh, we have some really large employers, national employers, and then we also have been intentional about engaging um, mid-sized employers and smaller employers as we um, are transforming into not being just a large self-insured business group One health. By default, that happened um, to being the business group One health and being able to represent businesses of all sizes within our region. Well, and also, you know, we've seen that 
growth, obviously, in smaller and smaller companies becoming self-insured. That's right. And so they need a place to go where they can get that right information. You're exactly right. And Pittsburgh, honestly, hasn't been ahead of that wave. I mean, we're actually on the back end of that. And what you're seeing maybe in Texas and other parts of the country around small employers becoming self-insured, we're preparing ourselves for that. We expect that to hit us. Just like high deductible health plans, we weren't the first to adopt it. We're a very paternalistic region in na- by nature. And um, the same with self-insurance. Taking that level of risk is, is challenging for employers. And we want to be there to be a resource for them to help them navigate that. And you also operate in a unique environment. You yeah. have a big, big provider and a big payer, and that leads to some interesting stuff as you're trying to navigate your employer group through the system. Yes, it does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, um, that has been quite an experience. You can underestimate, you know, um, what that really means, and if you're not in the middle of it, you probably don't understand. And other parts of the region, when you say, well, our dominant insurer and our dominant provider aren't working together friendly, they don't allow you, they don't network or contract together, you you don't have access like you used to. In other parts of the country, that may sound somewhat familiar. What makes it unique in Pittsburgh is how it's been handled and how aggressive um, the marketing has been, the bickering in a way has been over the years and the disruption has been um, to not only our employers but those who they're there to offer um, benefits and access to the community and Pittsburgh Business Group on Health has been um, very vocal about that over the years about taking on the position of the employer and what they need um, as the market transitions and um, unapologetically so uh, uh-huh. representing employers on access quality, ensuring innovation continues, um, making sure that costs um, are managed uh, in the in the highly consolidated marketplace. So it's been very, um, very fast paced. Uh, we're learning as we're going. We're pivoting as employers as quickly as we can to not just be reactive to how the market is changing, but trying to be as proactive as possible to ensure we have a seat at the table as these decisions are being made. And what have some of the larger employers said about some of that whole market dynamic there? Uh, you know, Do they feel like they can begin to make a difference and, and get some things moving the way they need them? I think, honestly, it's not even up to the the larger employers as much as I'm seeing a a variety of segments of employers coming together with different perspectives and they're all impacted um, uniquely. So a larger employer may have or likely has more uh, room to be creative and vendor selection. They're who they mm-hmm. choose as their TPA, for example, or if they choose multiple TPAs and offer more options, where a mid, smaller, mid-sized employer can't afford to have three TPAs or, or you know, four different options for employees. So they have been um, impacted at different parts of the decision points. Um, what is very clear is that access is critical to all of the employers. They want them to have quality access. They want the employees um, and themselves to have choice in the marketplace. Um, And so I've seen a variety of reactions to that. Um, Some of them, in a way, have chosen networks, um, have chosen to evolve into ACO models, uh, where a couple, few years ago that wasn't the case. Right. Um, Some of them have, are considering direct primary care um, strategies. 
and helping to control and manage the uh, delivery, the referral patterns. You manage costs in that way, take more control. Uh, we have more employers now than before looking at on-site uh, clinic options. Uh, we also have employers considering direct contracting and looking at competition very differently than they would have if this weren't happening. Mm -hmm. And um, considering competition not just within Western PA but beyond Western Pennsylvania if they need to. Uh, transparency has been a focal point for employers over the past several years, wanting to make sure they're not being made, um, given, making decisions from fear or billboards or newspaper ads, but really from a, from a quality and value position. Uh, so we're looking at, as a PBG, as a coalition, bringing in uh, more and more transparency around quality data at the facility level and the physician level, as well as uh, cost data through employers, self-insured employers uh, providing their claims data for an aggregate community view. So it's been a lot of change uh, in printing, trying to equip employers with tools to help them make informed uh, decisions. And so you've actually pulled together the data sets from a number of your employer groups into a claim data warehouse? Yes. Yes. And you're now providing them with feedback on that overall look? Yes, we are. We are. It's really exciting. It's been two years, two and a half wow. years in the making. And the benefit of the market changing so aggressively is that it's forced us to step up in a different way than we uh -huh. wouldn't have otherwise probably, or at least as aggressively as we have. And um, so we're really excited about that. The employers are now able to see the community lens view of them and their peers in the region. The is data. there any interesting early insights? You know, we've went at the very onset of this. We saw very quickly um, the variation in site of care within wow. our marketplace, uh -huh. uh, where people are actually getting care, how much the cost variation, and not only site of care across the board, but on certain types of uh, procedures or conditions that are being treated. Uh -huh. uh, so those there's some key highlights around that. Uh, oncology sticks out, of course. Um, we see across the board that musculoskeletal issues are. Are key and we are drilling that down from an analysis perspective and do think that if we have some primary care interventions that could definitely help with some of this um, and I think that's driving some of employers looking at on-site clinics and other uh, solutions to help them get ahead of some of these. Yeah and I think your community was a little early in the cancer issue with the provider system because we're seeing it in Jacksonville now too with the yeah. provider system uh, getting much more aggressive in the cancer space, taking their doctors and making them outpatient clinics and the rest of it. So you sort of foreshadowed that, I think, for a lot of other parts of the country. I think so. Um, probably, we wish we weren't. Right, right. <laughs> we wish that we weren't in that position, honestly. Uh, but we did learn in, in a quite public way uh, uh -huh. through an arbitration process what was happening and that it, it didn't just happen overnight. This was years in the making of shifts in practices and coding and um, other things behind that you wouldn't typically look at or get a report on if you were a purchaser of healthcare, right? Um, but it has forced us to look at um, how, how employers contract with their health plans, how they hold their health plan carriers accountable to contract with providers. Um, to ask for data that they never uh, had asked for before and for us now to proactively get data and insight into that through our data aggregation um, tool uh, so that we can manage that moving forward. But yeah, it was pretty pretty public. Employers had to pay, self-insured employers had to pay back um, hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of uh, different practices going on that they weren't aware of. Uh, so Right, and, yeah. I, and it was interesting because 
I heard you talk about it a few years ago, mm-hmm. whenever that came out, and then I watched it happen in Jacksonville. And uh, MD Anderson and the local Baptist hospital came together, and the cancer docs that were there were moved out. They brought in their own. They're employed. They're all now re-set up as outpatient facilities, and the infusion costs are going up. They're going up. Yep. They're going so, up. Yeah, and it's. I tell people across the country, you probably heard me say this at that time, look out, watch <laughs> Pittsburgh, because it's coming to a city near you. And you in a very short period of time, in a very short period of time, now I have my fellow you know, peers across the country saying, hey, would you come speak? Or guess what's happening? Yeah. Or guess who's in our backyard now? And uh-huh. um, so, yeah, it is happening across the country. And that is even more reason why I think coalitions are important Absolutely. and why we should band together, uh, not just within our regions, but across the country and have a perspective on, on the, these trends mm-hmm. and, how, and have, a, I guess, make some decisions. I think it's the year of the employer and we have an opportunity to make a change. And do some things. So yeah. do you see in your market, is there this move to some value-based care, more value-based contracting, risk-based, capitation possibly? I see it in discussion, uh-huh. and I see it in pockets. I, uh, we ha- haven't um, infiltrated that those strategies and made that a mainstay or, you know, a common language. But at, definitely, there is interest. There's a desire to be educated on it, and a model and framework we're looking forward to to mm-hmm. help um, introduce and help employers follow that. Mm-hmm. And if you were to talk to CEOs of a self-insured company. What sort of things would you tell them to look at first? That's a good question. You know, in speaking with various CEOs over the past couple of years, I've, I have been impressed with the amount um, that they've been, uh, they, that they, what they understand and what they care about around employees' health. Mm-hmm. They care about their employees' health. They do care about cost. Um, in a market that's as disruptive as, as ours, I would say um, to evolve your relationships with the providers, understand where cost and quality really comes into play, how it's impacting your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the access to the C-suite of every hospital system in our region. Realize that they are their customer and expect them to be treated as a customer. And so at the C-suite level, I would say that community uh, leadership role and having a relationship with the, the systems within our region, the providers, in a way that they can let them know what's important to them. That's and empower their HR leadership and their CFOs so that HR leadership can say yes more to innovation, mm-hmm. um, to more maybe seemingly riskier solutions, uh-huh. and be rewarded for taking risk that will help their organizations and their employee populations be healthier and thrive better. So you're recognized as one of the innovators out there, one of the stronger uh, business groups on health. What do you what do you see out there maybe coming down the pike that excites you, that thinks, hey, man, we can start looking at doing that to help our employees, your employers? That's a good question, uh, Fred. I, a lot of things excite me, honestly. Um, I, 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 being in forums like this at the yeah. World Congress uh, energizes me because you see a lot of the innovations. Uh, you even see employers who are ready to push the needle and uh-huh. um, be somewhat uh, mavericks in yeah. healthcare. Uh, I think a lot of the innovation that is coming out to make healthcare uh, more seamless, more connected, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about um, direct primary care models or mm-hmm. our models like that, that employers are now in a way um, 
as much as they really didn't want to willingly for years to be in the business of healthcare, realizing that they are in the business of healthcare and determining uh, what role they should play on bringing things on site or providing access either virtually through telemedicine um, opportunities. That's exciting. Honestly, you know, a lot of people might not um, be joining me yet on this, but I am excited about the reality of competition evolving and not just being in your backyard, but employers now being able to say, I'll work with a, par a party across the country if I need to, or I'll work with someone across borders if I need to, uh -huh. to make sure that we're providing high quality access. The fact that employers have more leverage now than ever, collectively and with options that are happening across the world, um, I think is really exciting. So. Uh -huh. so for those people in Pittsburgh, and how big an area do you cover? We cover all of Western Pennsylvania. Our, our model is very diverse. Mm -hmm. um, so in our group purchasing opportunities, you we're a coalition without borders. You can live anywhere in the country or be housed anywhere in the country. Headquarter, we have employers right. in Texas who are part of PBGH, employers in um, the South and, mm -hmm. and Midwest who are part of PBGH through our group purchasing efforts. Um, so you really don't have to be in Pittsburgh. Most employers are either headquartered in Western Pennsylvania mm -hmm. or have a significant portion of their population there who are part of our advocacy and our uh, data as well mm -hmm. as our education initiatives. So if an employer wants to find out more about the Pittsburgh Business Group on Health, where do they go? They go to www.pbghpa.org. PBTHPA.org. PA that's is in Pennsylvania. Yep, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, as always, Jessica, it's fantastic to have you come in here and, and spend some time with us. Your insights are always great. You're doing great work in Pittsburgh, and it's wonderful to see you again. Thank so you. I appreciate so much it, Fred. For coming. It's my pleasure. <laughs> it's fun. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. And there you have it. We're going to wind this show down. I believe we uh, will finish up today's broadcast, and we'll be back on tomorrow between 11 and 1 o'clock. And uh, we, again, have uh, seven or eight great guests, just like we had today. It's a fantastic conference. We're also hoping a little bit later today to do a periscope around the exhibit uh, hall here to show you some of these unique companies. And with that, for uh, Greg Masters and myself, this is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media from the World Healthcare Congress.